If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we continue in the series that uh, we started from the beginning on different attributes and characteristics of the Word of God. A while back, I was on an airplane, and it just so happened there was a gentleman on the plane that I knew. He was uh, a man that was uh, a long-standing member of a very solid uh, Bible-preaching church. And we were talking. I was in seminary, and, and you know we were talking about preaching and, and the role of preaching and how important it was. And he said, you know, I just don't really get into preaching. And I said, really? And he says, yeah. He says, you know, after you learn the stories and after you've heard it all, it's just, I just feel like we need to just come together and, you know, maybe just just sing and maybe have a time of fellowship and maybe eating together. And, you know, that's what I'd prefer. And, you know, my jaw just fell on the ground. So I thought, here is a man who has served an elder of a very solid church for a long time. And to make a statement like that... Um, was scary because it showed some severe ignorance of what the scriptures teach. And it amazed me. It's really indicative of the attitudes that many people have today. That preaching of the word is, you know, some sort of outdated, uh, archaic, you know, something they did before the printing press was invented. And, you know, it's still lingering on, but eventually we'll be able to get rid of it and get down to something more relevant and some are setting aside preaching for various forms of entertainment and, and media and uh, just, you know, to give people something they think uh, they need. And in some churches, the pastor is, you know, he's just the MC. Um, you know, he may say a little devotional at the beginning. He's kind of the master of ceremonies. And then um, the rest of the service is focused on pleasing men rather than giving glory to God. And the siren cry of these kind of churches is often the cry of uh, tolerance. Now, we need to be tolerant. We need to be, quote, accepting. And really, they promote a form of unity which is not biblical. People aren't of the same mind and the same faith that we're called to be. They're of different minds and different faiths. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They want to be able to sin when they want to sin. They want to be able to do what they want to do. And they don't want anybody confronting them. And that's what happens in preaching. So let's just get rid of it. Just how important is biblical preaching anyway? I mean, what is the role of preaching in the church? Is preaching outdated? Will churches who obey God always have preachers preaching away on Sunday morning? Or will eventually they figure out that um, they need something that's less uh, confrontational, less divisive, and less, you know, informational? If you remember, as we studied these passages, each passage we've looked at has taught us something important about the Word of God. From Psalm 19, we learned that God's Word is able to transform your life. That is more precious than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It is great. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21, through 21, we learn that the Word of God is more sure, more sure than experience, 
more sure than any other thing we have because it is the Word of God. And that's what we have, and that's what God has given us, His more sure Word. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 11, we looked at the text which tells us that God's Word always accomplishes every single thing that He has intended for it to accomplish. It never returns void. And we learned that God's ways aren't our ways. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways above our ways. And when we think that God's word says something that's a little weird or a little strange, or we're wondering why in the world he would ever say to do something like that and it doesn't seem right, it's probably because his ways aren't our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And we can be encouraged that he is God and we are not. Then last week from Amos 8, we learned that God's word is so important that to neglect it is to bring upon oneself the worst famine anyone could ever suffer, a famine of the word of God. It is our spiritual nourishment, and anyone who wants to please God, who wants to thrive as a Christian, must have the word of God. Well, today we come to another key text, which teaches us another aspect of God's word. It is a text which, grammatically speaking, contains the strongest biblical command anywhere in the Bible. Very interesting passage. Very interesting command. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy 4, if you aren't there already, and we're going to engage the text in just a minute. During Paul's third missionary journey, he had... Timothy stay on in Ephesus. He had been there, remember, for um, three years and preached the word day and night, the whole council of God's word, teaching them publicly and from house to house. And Ephesus was such a key place. I mean, it was such a strategic location. It was a trade port where people came to do commerce. It was a, a tourist place because there was the huge temple of Artemis. It was there situated right in the middle of the Mediterranean basin, a key um, you know, bulkhead or, or, or you know, battle strategic location so the gospel could go out because people were coming and going. And if they could just hold that church and just keep it pure... They would be able to have this uh, beachhead in which to pervade the whole Mediterranean basin with the gospel. And so it was a very critical place. And so he sends Timothy, his beloved child in the faith there, to stay on at Ephesus. And to fight the good fight. And Paul, meanwhile, is in prison for the last time. He is not under house arrest like before, where he could have visitors and, you know, everything was, you know, you just kind of stay around here and, you know, you're under arrest, but you can, you know, have some freedoms. No, this time he is in basically a sewer pipe, a big hollowed out intersection of the sewer system where after a time prisoners were drowned with sewer and washed away. And in this cold, dark dingy place, the man of God, used probably more than any other person who has ever lived, writes his final message to Timothy. A message that we have here called Second Timothy. And in this book, he 
just lays aside all the peripheral stuff and he gets down to the nuggets of the ministry. See, he knows that Satan would love to see the church at Ephesus fold up. I mean, he, 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 he would love that. And Paul would love to see it thrive. And so now he is telling Timothy how to maintain the church there at Ephesus. But Timothy, he's having just a whole slug of problems. He's, he's timid and um, he's shy and he's got all these incredible arguers and rhetoricians, you know, out arguing him. And he's starting to falter and, you know, maybe they're right and maybe I should you know, change, and maybe I should hear them out, and maybe I shouldn't be so bold, and, and he's, he's vacillating, he's, uh, he's timid, and he's not doing very well. And because of this, Paul has to you know, get him caught on fire again, get him refocused about those absolutely essential things that he must do. This is, so to speak, Paul's last will and testament, not only to Timothy, but to the church of all the ages. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy of his responsibility as a minister. Then in chapter 2, he says, you need to work hard at fulfilling those responsibilities. Then in chapter 3, he says, get ready. Apostasy, false doctrine, and wicked people are going to try and overrun the church. And then in chapter 4, he is now going to lay down for us the cure, the antidote, the sustaining force, which is going to keep the church of Ephesus functioning. So if you have your Bibles, look there in chapter 4 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 4 from the New American Standard Bible. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Today you will discover why preaching is the lifeblood of every healthy church. If you remove preaching from the church, it's like cutting the carotid artery. The church will slowly die. You should come away understanding that preaching is absolutely necessary, when preaching is to be done, how preaching is to be done, and why preaching is to be done. This is, so to speak, Paul's mini-theology of preaching for the church. Now look at verse 1. Notice what it says there. Paul begins, I solemnly charge you. This would be better translated, I solemnly command you. I command you, he's saying. Listen, I'm going to tell you something, Timothy. I want you to know something. This is the last chapter, mind you, of his last epistle to his beloved child in the faith and to the church at large. And now he is ending his last epistle with those essential things that he wants the church to know. Timothy 
was used to this, this solemn charging, because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, he says, I solemnly charge you to maintain these principles without bias. What principles? All the principles he talked about in the previous part of the book. And then later on in chapter 6, verse 13 of 1 Timothy, he says basically the same thing. He solemnly charges Timothy to keep the commandment, singular, without stain or reproach which is to obey everything he has taught him. And Satan knows that the preaching of the word is so critical, and so he is constantly attacking. He has all his guns and cannons aimed at preaching. He wants preaching to be cut down, whittled down, weaked, watered down, so that he can attack the church. Because he knows if preaching is weak, then doctrine is weak, and holiness is weak, and then he takes over. Now look at the compound seriousness of this charge. It would be bad enough if Paul were to say to you, just imagine yourself being Timothy, I charge you, I command you. I mean, that would be enough. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul, he wrote 13 books in the New Testament, he's got some authority. But when he says, I solemnly charge you, he's saying, I am earnestly, I am soberly. I am telling you this, Timothy, solemnly. I charge you. And that is serious. But that is just the beginning. Look at the text again. He says, I am solemnly you charge you, we're in the presence of God. Now why does he add this on there? I mean, a solemn charge from an apostle is plenty good. But here he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. Well, that's interesting. Because if you think about it, we are always in God's presence, Right? And what he's talking about here is, Timothy, I want you to know God is watching you. God sees everything you do. And you know what? He sees me charging you. As a matter of fact, he is the one who is charging you through me. And you are in his presence and you will stand before him. You know, like James says, teachers will incur stricter judgment. And he says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God. And that is really scary. Because you know that God knows all things, that he is holy and just. And when we get to heaven, we can't say, well, uh, can I appeal? There is no higher court. There's no lawyers in heaven except repented ones. (laughs) God is the final court. When he draws up the indictment, it's over. Now, as if that command from the apostle wasn't enough that a solemn charge wasn't enough, that a solemn charge in the presence of God wasn't enough, notice what he says, and in the presence of Christ Jesus. God in general, Christ Jesus, God incarnate in specific. That is your Savior, Timothy, your Lord, Timothy, your friend, Timothy, your judge, Timothy, your advocate, Timothy, I am charging you in his presence too. And you'd think that Timothy by now was breaking out in a cold sweat, thinking, maybe I shouldn't read the rest of this letter. (laughs) But he continues to lay it on until it's as tall as a skyscraper. He adds on, who is to judge the living and the dead? Oh. Does he have to throw that judging part in there? Yes, he does. Timothy, I want you to know that as a pastor, as a minister of Jesus Christ, there is this huge weight of responsibility. 
And I am charging you now before God and Christ Jesus. And remember who Jesus is. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And you remember what Jesus said? I'm not going to judge people, but it is the what? The words that I speak that will judge you in that day. And here Christ is speaking through the apostle Paul to Timothy to tell him what to do. And then finally he tacks on and finishes off this monumental six-layered charge with, by his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, Timothy, you need to know that at any moment in any day, God, Jesus Christ incarnate, who is to judge the living and the dead, will appear and bring his kingdom to earth. And you better be found doing what he wants you to be doing. And I'm going to tell you what he wants you to be doing. And that brings us to the first point. Look at verse 2. Preach the word. There it is. Now, this is the fountainhead of five different commands in the text. Basically, Paul begins to layer up this charge. He begins to collect all of these modifiers. And he gets them all loaded up in the cannon like powder. And then he puts five slugs in the cannon. And this is the lead dog. Preach the word. It is an aorist active imperative, which is the strongest command you can have in the Greek. And he says, Timothy, you better preach. And then he adds on these other commands to let him know just how and when and why he is to do that. Preach the word. Many pastors today are abdicating this command. They are not preaching the word. They are going for the seeker-sensitive services where they seem to have forgotten that there are none who seek after God, no, not even one. This is not a place where we tone everything to cater to the felt needs of unbelievers. Now, that is not to say that you can't have an evangelistic service. That's not to say that you can't present the gospel. That's not to say that unbelievers aren't here. I'm sure there's some of you right now who don't know Christ. But the purpose of the church, first and foremost, is to collect the saints, to gather the assembly, the ecclesia, the church, to gather together so that you, who are saved, can exercise your spiritual gift to edify one another, that we can corporately worship God, so we can be instructed from His Word, so we can be equipped, so we can get grenades and bullets and ammunition, so we can go out in the world and do battle. That's why we come together, to get equipped to do the work of the ministry. The Great Commission is not going to all the world and make sure people go to church. Getting people churched is not the goal. Getting people saved is the goal. And once they are saved, they will go to church. There are many people in churches all over the world who go every Sunday and worship, but will swim in the lake of fire because they go to dead churches who don't preach the gospel and they don't even know it. But they're being religious. Dr. Richard Mayhew, dean of the Master's Seminary, said this, Quote, while the growing trend among today's preachers is towards consumer satisfaction and contemporary relevancy, we reaffirm that biblical preaching must first be directed towards divine satisfaction and kingdom relevance, end quote. Amen. We are not here 
to find out, you know, what the Gallup poll says about how we should do things. We aren't here to take a survey to have a congregational vote on what should be done. What is to be done is in this book. And God tells us what we are to do. And we go to this book and find out what God says and we do it that way. We are after divine relevance and kingdom relevance, not personal satisfaction. The word preach here in verse 2 could also be translated herald or proclaim. It means to publicly announce something to someone. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says the definition of preach here should not be confused with a merely moral or religious discourse. It, It means to make known officially and publicly a matter of great significance. You know, when you're sitting at your desk at work and you have a little break and you pop out your banana and you start peeling it and you're just going to have a banana. I mean, that's it. And you start eating it and the guy over the little divider says, So... Why do you go to church anyways? And then you're there, ready to proclaim publicly the truth of God's word. And just when you're getting ready to say, well, let me tell you. About eight more heads stick over the dividers around you. And now you're wondering, hmm... Do I want to say something? And that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You are now forced to make a decision for Christ or a decision for self-preservation. And we are all called to be preachers in this sense. Sure, this is a primary um, concern, talking about leaders in the church, those who teach, those who preach publicly in the church setting, but also... It applies to you and that whenever you share the gospel, you are proclaiming publicly a matter of great significance, which is the truth of the gospel. And we're all supposed to do that. As we look closer at verse 2, look there. We see we are to preach the word, and this is the first of the string of these long imperatives, the first being when to preach. Notice he says, be ready. This is the second command here. Literally, be on standby. Be instant, like instant breakfast. Yeah, you just pour in milk. Breakfast. It's like a microwave. Stick it in. Zap. Ready to go. Don't be like a crock pot. (laughs) Some guy says, yeah, tell me about your church. I'll get back to you later on today, next month, or next year. No. Instant. Be ready. Now, if you were to go out into battle, since we are soldiers for Christ, you can imagine what a catastrophe it would be to give a bunch of individuals you know, some grenades and flamethrowers and mortar launchers and machine guns and pistols and guns, and you don't tell them how to use them. You just thrust them out there into a firefight. They would be slaughtered. Why? Because they were never made ready. Now, in the same way as Christians, we are going out into the world where we are going to encounter opposition. We are going to have opportunities to share our faith, to live our faith, to show people what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we need to be ready. We need to be instantly ready. 
in season and out of season. That's what he says here. Notice the qualifier is not just be ready, but be ready in season and out of season, which means at all occasions, at all times, in every situation. You know, you want to go out and get some oranges off your tree, and it's orange season. You go out there and you pick them and you eat them. But then if you go out and it's not season, then what? Well, then you go out and they're green. And here he's saying, listen, whether it's the season for preaching or not the season for preaching, preach anyways. So when the people are sitting there thinking, well, Jack, you've done your 30 minutes, keep preaching. (laughs) Don't stop. Basically saying at any time, in any situation, whether it's popular or not, whether you have opposition or not, whether people want it or not, preach the word. Be ready to preach the word, to proclaim it in season and out of season. You need to ask yourself, am I ready to proclaim God's truth, a matter of great significance? You remember what 1 Peter 3.15 says? It says that we need to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. So when that person over the divider says, hey, why are you a Christian? You can say, I am a Christian because, and you tell them, because I place my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection, because I have committed to him as my Lord and Savior, and I'm walking with him, I'm seeking to love him by obeying his word, by loving other people, by going to church, by whatever. Tell them. Tell them. So we are all to be ready. That is when we are to preach. All seasons be ready. Now how are we to preach? Because of the seriousness of the task, the first thing we should remember is that as members of Calvary Bible Church, we need to pray for one another. Because preaching is so important, we need to pray, not only for me, but for each other. We need to pray that we have boldness. Do you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 6.18, right after the, the armor of God passage? He says this, Pray that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now that just amazes me. Here is this guy who... Who is the ultimate preacher? I mean, this, this man has done more preaching, and he says, pray that I have boldness. It's like, boldness? Who needs boldness when you've been shipwrecked and stoned and flogged and all those things listed in Corinthians? My favorite story is in Acts when Paul is preaching the gospel to a city, and they stone him, and they think he's dead, and they take him outside the city, and they throw him in the rubble. And then Paul finally comes to, all beat up with stones. And what does he do? Does he go to the next city? No. The text says he gets up and goes back into the city and preaches. That's what we need. We need boldness to preach. Then the second imperative in the text, if you look there, we find out we are to not only preach the word, not only to be ready in season and out of season, but the first or the third command we come to is reprove. Reprove. The NIV uses correct. 
Trench and his synonyms of the New Testament says this word. It is to rebuke another with such effectual feeling of the victorious arms of truth as to bring one, if not always to confession, yet at least to conviction of sin, end quote. Preaching is to be confrontational. I mean, when you are talking with somebody about the gospel, you don't have to say, well, listen, um, let's see now, okay, first let me tell you uh, about the natives in Africa, then let me try and prove to you why the Bible is true, and let me tell you, try to prove to you that um, why Christianity is the preferred religion of all other religions in this world, and then let me... You don't see Paul doing that. He just says, hey, listen... This is what the gospel is. We determined to know nothing among you but what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the message to those who don't know Christ. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You place your faith in God, and once you place your faith in God, then He gives you His Spirit. Then you can understand the truth, not the other way around. This tells us that the Word of God is preached to maintain purity in the church. Why? Because we're to be around reproving each other. Now, is this fun? No. Is this comfortable? No. I mean, it's not very fun to have somebody come up to you and say, "Uh, Jack, yes, you blew it. But, you know, if people love me, they're going to say that. And if I love you, I am going to say that. Why? Because when your child is playing in the street... You don't say, oh, I don't want to reprove them because it might hurt their feelings. You say, get out of there. Get out of the street. John Stott says the preacher does not supply his own message, but is supplied with it. You see, preachers are just conduits of truth. And, you know, you may think, oh, you know, this sermon is convicting or last week's was convicting or whatever. But you need to remember, I need to live with that sermon all week. And if you think it beat up you, it beat up me all week. And if you think it's bad to take it and leave, I have to take it all week. And you know what's really bad is, and this is the paradox of of preaching, is that every time you preach, you are a hypocrite. Every single time. I hate that. I mean, I hate it. I wish I could come one Sunday and say, I have reached perfection in obeying the truths of this text. (laughs) I have never once preached a sermon that I wasn't a hypocrite. I have never yet achieved perfection in any truth I have ever, ever taught other people that they have to believe. But you see, my job is not to wait till I become perfect and preach. No, my job is to do my best and preach. And your job is to take the truth and do the best you can. And the power of the Spirit. I just lead you to the waters and you have to drink. I can't make you obey. You have to obey. I cannot make you do that. And as a herald, I just study all week and fill up the dump truck of my mind and then I just dump it all on you. And then you have to take all that stuff and take it home and get a tape and listen to it so you can remember everything that was said. Somebody said, you speak really fast. It's like, yeah, yeah you got to, you know, time is just ever approaching. <laughs> Trying to stay within my allotted time and be good. The fourth imperative of the text here is to rebuke. Notice, preach the word, 
be ready, reprove, and then rebuke. And this is similar to reprove, but it is even stronger. Even stronger. It connotes a sharp reprimand and confrontation of sin. You know when somebody says to you, Come here, Jack. I want to tell you something. Yeah, and they look around. It's like, yeah. You're sinning. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's a sharp rebuke. And the preacher, the teacher of God's word, is to tell it like God tells it. Adultery is not an extramarital affair. Fornication is not a meaningful relationship. Homosexual is not an alternate lifestyle. The preacher, though imperfect, is called to preach a perfect standard. Not only to himself, but to the people. So everybody knows what God wants everybody to attain to. John MacArthur has said in his book, Rediscovering Expository Preaching, the man of God is a fighter, he is a polemicist, a contender, a battler, a soldier. He must understand that the ministry is a war and he is fighting on the side of truth against error. To perceive the ministry as anything else is to lose. He battles the world, he battles the flesh, he battles the devil, he battles his kingdom of darkness, he battles sin, heresy, apathy, and lethargy in the church. End quote. And that's how it is. You know, I often get encouraged when people get mad at me when I preach. Is that sadistic or what? Because I know that it's a battle. I would feel really strange if everybody went home thinking, that was so wonderful. I'd think, oh man, I blew it. Why? Because I'm up here to confront you, to exhort you, to reprove, rebuke. Because that's what we're all about. The word exhort here in the text might also be translated to encourage or admonish. It literally means to call one alongside and speak to them. Do you remember what Nathan did to David? You know, David, he's the king. He should have been out to war. He's on his roof. He's scoping out the city. He sees the babe Bathsheba down there. And he has his, quote, extramarital affair, his adulterous relationship with her. Then she gets pregnant. And then he figures, hmm, I need to do something. So then he gets Uriah to come and tries to cover up his sin. That doesn't work, so he puts Uriah in the forefront of battle and tells Joab to just remove the army around him so he gets struck down, and that happens and has him murdered. And then for nine months, he doesn't repent. For nine months, he stays there in unrepentant sin and misery. He writes some good psalms during that time. That was one good thing that came out of it. Um, And he's just wasting away as with the fever heat of summer. And Nathan the prophet comes along. Now, Nathan knows that he is a shepherd. He knows that he loves sheep. He knows that he has, you know, some compassion for shepherds, being a shepherd in his uh, former um, job or whatever you want to call it. And he says, uh, David, I got a little story to tell you. It's like, well, what's that? Well, there was this man, and he had this little tiny, he was poor. And he had this ewe lamb, and he loved it like a daughter. And you know what David's thinking? Oh, yeah, I had some like that. They are so fuzzy and so cute. He goes, yeah, he just loved him. He loved him. And then there was this man. He was rich and had all sort of dirty, fat, plump, adult sheep, huge herds. And he had some guests come into town, and so what did he do? But 
He didn't use one of his own sheep. He actually took one of the sheep, or the sheep of this little poor man, his, his ewe lamb, and he took it and killed it and fed it to his guests. And David is says his anger burned. So what should be done to the guy? He should die. He should pay fourfold. Then here comes the ex- exhortation. You are the man. Mm, mm. Now, did Nathan do that because he hated David? No. Do you think that was fun for Nathan? No. But it was necessary. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. And preaching focuses around reprove, rebuke, exhort. And then he adds here with great patience, gentleness, and instruction. The word great means all, every, each. You just you got to be patient. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners together. And so the preacher, as he preaches, realizes he's going to have to tell him the same thing over and over. And he's going to have to tell himself the same thing over and over. You know, you find out once you start preaching that there's only five things to know. You just say them in a different way. And you try and make people think you're telling them something different, but it's the same thing every week. As a preacher, a teacher, a task is not to just take God's word and just start lopping off heads. No. You come up to people and with the dagger of God's word, you thrust it in. And next week, we're going to find, about, find out about that in Hebrews, where we find the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we take pains to share God's word with great patience, gentleness, and instruction. Not to be harsh, to be blasting people away. I remember when I was a young believer, how I used to... Oh, man, I was obnoxious. Um, and some people are going, you got improvement still. Um, yeah, the, I had gone through this scripture memory course, and you know, I had all these Bible verses memorized, and oh man, I was obnoxious for Jesus. I was like, why wouldn't anybody want to be obnoxious like me? And what really blew me away is I was, I was working at this one hospital, and I shared Christ with all these people, but I was so obnoxious that no one came to the Lord. Then when I left, this friend of mine who was a Christian, who was see, I had a little bit more tack in me, he had been a Christian a little while longer, he then witnessed to the same people, and three of them came to the Lord. I thought, oh, great. Uh, a pokey, obnoxious witness for Jesus. And then, you know, and then if they don't like you, then you're just suffering for Christ. I mean, you can rationalize it. But you need to do it with great patience, gentleness, and instruction. Then we look at why we need to preach. Look at verses 3 and 4. Here we are told why the preaching of the word is so important, especially for this day and age. Notice what the text says. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. Now here we have four reasons. First he says, for a time will come. What time is that? It is the time of the last days. It is the time that he's referring to, if you look in chapter 3, verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And those last days are this day. 
are every day since the time of Christ. We know that from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. And so Paul is saying, because of these difficult times will come, you need to make sure you preach the Word. Now look back at chapter 3, verses 1 and follow. I just want to read you these first eight verses. And as I do, you'll see what Paul meant when he said difficult times will come at the beginning of verse 4. He's referring back to what he just said in chapter 3. Notice, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parent, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejecting in regards to the faith. That is what we are to stand up again. That is the difficulty of the last days, because men are given over to their depravity. And that is why we need to preach the word, because preaching confronts that, and it keeps that kind of behavior from infiltrating the church. Any church where they start setting aside preaching, you can just see the wave of carnality come in after it. I talked to this one church that they decided to do a major you know, style of ministry change. So they took the sermons, they chopped them down in these little 10-minute you know, devotions, and they decided to be really positive. And the elder said, man, just every single night we're out confronting people about sin. And the pastor was saying, man, I don't know what's wrong. He says, you know, it just that's all we do now. We're just professional confronters. You either do it from the pulpit or you do it at night in people's living room. That's why. That's why that sin always increases as the quality of God's word and preaching goes down. The scriptures are a sword. They're the hammer that Jeremiah says that shatters walk and a fire that consumes. They are powerful, and we're going to see next week how it relates to evangelism. When the Word of God is preached, men who are in sin don't like it. That is why when you're at work and you share Christ or say the Bible says this or that, people, they're run, their eyes go sideways. They don't want to <laughs> talk about it. They're like cockroaches, you know. You turn on the light and they run for the little dark corners. And all of humanity is just, you know... They're running like a herd of buffalo towards the cliff, and they don't even know it. And they're running away from the light. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Right after he, you know, John 3.16, right after that passage, Jesus gives this kind of commentary on men and their reaction to the truth of the gospel. And he says this in John 3.19 and following. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. They love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. He says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Do you see the contrast there? You have one group, the cockroaches, 
The light shines on them. They run away. Then you have the other group, the saved cockroaches. The light shines on them, and they come to the light. And they say, look it, I'm a cockroach, but I'm saved. (laughs) And look what God has done in my life. Give glory to God. That's what Jesus says. But notice what the text says, they will not endure. He says, they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure sound doctrine. They can't handle it. They don't want sound doctrine. That's why it is so important to be diligent and accurately teach the word. Look at chapter 2, verse 15 of 2 Timothy. Here's another command that he tells Timothy. He's talking about how he needs to be a workman. And here's the other solemn charge that will remind him of these things. Verse 14, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of its hearers. But he says, in contrast to that, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. He says, listen, you need to be diligent. And what do you need to be diligent doing? Handling accurately the word of truth. Why? Because you don't want to be ashamed when you stand before God. And that's what we are to do. Why? Because it is those things that are fitting for sound doctrine, accurately handling God's word. But notice, the psalm will not only reject sound doctrine, the text says, but they will pursue error. Look at verse 3 again. It says, For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. This is interesting. Men by nature flee from the truth. They pursue errors. error. Men love error. I mean, naturally. They're like those whales that beach themselves and die on the beach. The entire human race is just beaching itself on error. We tend to error. Like sparks that fly upwards, Job says, we're we're prone to error. Bauer Gingrich, um, Greek lexicon, says this word is used here, figurative of curiosity that looks for interesting and spicy bits of information. This itching is relieved by the teaching of new teachers, and I would ask new false teachers. I mean, you and I know what happens. There's somebody who comes, they want an un- uh, unbiblical divorce. Or they want to do something the Bible says they can't do. And so you tell them what God's word says, and do they say all the time, oh, okay, if that's what God says, then, you know, that's, I guess I can't do that. No, what do they do? They go to the, somebody else and find out what that person says. And if that doesn't work, then what do they do? They go to somebody else, and they go to somebody else, and they go to somebody else until someone goes, ah. Tells them what they want to hear. They got their ears tickled. Thank you. Now I can indulge in my sin. Now these people, these rejectors of truth, these who are basically living by their own lusts, are described by several phrases, four of them to be exact. Notice they will accumulate, literally pile up, heap upon themselves. What? Teachers, in accordance with their own lusts or desires, the word is epithumia, their own passions. You know, these people, they, they, they aren't here to give God glory. They aren't here to give God the glory he deserves by obeying him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. No, they're, they're, their God is their stomach. They want to do what they want to do. They want to feel the way they want to feel. 
And so what they do is they accumulate teachers who tickle their ears, who make them feel good. Like Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 5.31, the prophets prophesy falsely and my people love it so. Today we have whole denominations folding up because they are trying to give people what they feel like they need. These churches are full of people who want to have their ears tickled. They're tickling their ears and the churches fold up. Secondly, they are described in verse 4 as turning their ears away from the truth. They see the truth, and because they don't like the light of the gospel, they turn away. Do you remember what happened in Stephen, the first martyr of the church in Acts 7? Do you remember what happened when he was preaching his, his little hammer of a sermon? I love the sermon, because everything he says at the beginning, all the Jews are going, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right, yeah, that's right too, that's right too. And then at the very end, by the way, you killed your own Messiah! Now, that did not go over well. And the text says in Acts 7 that they were cut to the quick. The the sword of God's truth just cut them to the quick, and it says they began gnashing their teeth at him. Ah. And then, after he looked up and said, you know, I see Jesus up there in heaven. Oh, that was the end of it. In Acts 7.57 it says, But when they cr- he cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, la la la, can't hear you, because they didn't want to hear any more of the truth. They wanted their ears tickled. So they covered their ears, and they rushed upon him in one impulse and stoned him to death. And all he did was tell them the truth. Ears are the passageway to the heart, and those who love the truth will listen to the truth, but those who do not love the truth, shut down. Like John Bunyan's book, The Holy War, where every gate of the city of Mansoul is one of the different senses by which truth gets in. And the main attack goes to the ear gate. Third, not only do they accumulate teachers after their own lust and turn their ears away from the truth. Notice what the text says, they turn aside to myths. Notice, it's not just a turning away from truth, but it's a turning away from truth to error, to myths. Last night we were at the grocery store, and I'm standing in line, and look at the tabloids. I mean, prove positive that people love myths. You know, there was one that was just classic. Somebody showed me, it was a picture of this oil rig fire and you know they've made this face of the devil in the cloud Satan escapes from the earth (laughs) devil released you know from this oil rig that caught fire oh come on people will believe anything but the truth and what what is amazing that they want Christians to be tolerant of what they believe right I mean they want to want you to believe the myth of evolution They want it taught in schools. They want you to believe that the reason the pilgrims came over is because they were just on vacation. (laughs) I mean, they, they almost died coming over because, you know, I mean, come on. They were looking for a little bit more space and, uh, you know, some place to build some new roads. Had nothing to do with religious freedom. Had nothing to do that the bulk of those people were Puritans, were religious precisionists and were tired of the state telling them how they were going to worship. They promote a myth 
on purpose, and they want us to accept it. But when we tell them the truth, then, oh, foul play! You've got separation of church and state. Yeah, but not separation of state and myth. And this is how it is. They turn away from the truth and they seek error. So why do we preach? Why is preaching so important? Why do we preach in the church? Because God commands it. And that's good enough. Secondly, we preach all the time. Why? Because God commands it in season and out of season. How is preaching to be done? It's to be done confrontationally by reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience, gentleness, and instruction. And why is preaching to be done? Four reasons. Because we live in an age when people have a hard time enduring sound doctrine and they want to have their ears tickled. Because we live in a time when people are more concerned with feeling good and having their desires fulfilled than their sins subdued. Because we live in a time when people are turning away from the truth. And because we live in a time when people are turning towards myths. And that is why you and I need to preach the word, to publicly proclaim the matter of great significance which is Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like ourselves, and by placing our faith in Him, we can have eternal life. And as long as the church exists upon this earth, God has called us to preach the Word, to be examples, to model what we preach, so that people can grow, so they can come to know God, so they can live with Him in eternity and enjoy Him forever. And that's why we preach. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his last letter to Timothy. We thank you that he is so faithful to teach us just the most important things of preaching and knowing that we're not ashamed before you because we've handled accurately the word of truth and we've been bold. And Father, I just ask that each one of us would examine our own hearts. And as we leave here today, we would ask ourselves, are we ready to give a hope and a, for that, uh, or give an account for the hope that is within us? Are we ready to share Christ with those we run into? Father, we beg you for boldness. We beg you for mercy. We ask your forgiveness for the times when we did not follow through and we were ashamed of you before men. Father, help us to be bold next time. Give us another chance and help us to stand firm in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and proclaim your word. Pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.